as part of this quarter. I have not seen the new class schedule yet. I'm certain that will get released over the weekend in preparation for Sunday. Uh, so be paying attention to that when it does come out. But, but tonight will be our last session on this topic of how to study the Bible. And I have to be honest, I'm grateful. <laughs> because this has been one of the more challenging classes for me to teach. Uh, you know, I have my own method, methodology for studying for myself and it's going to vary from me to any other individual. And so coming up with the strategic way of how to present uh, for, for uh, a general audience to, to, to have strategy on how to study was quite challenging and daunting for me. Hence the reason I, I chose to rely upon this, this text all quarter, grasping God's word. Again, I encourage you, if you want to study on this subject further, I would encourage you to get this book because we only made it through about half of the book and this whole, thir- this, well, I guess it's only been like 10 weeks of us engaging in this very topic, 10 or 11 weeks. So I encourage you to get this book if you want a, a more in-depth study. The remaining half of the book that we don't cover gets into the details of how to study specific genres, how to study the Gospels, how to study the Epistles, how to study uh, the book of Revelation and apocalyptic literature and so on. So if you want to do a deeper dive in this subject matter, I encourage you to go there. Uh, I want to take you back to the beginning of this class as as we gear up for the end. Uh, When we began this class, we talked about the difference between uh, exegesis and hermeneutics. The task of interpreting, the task of studying the Bible and interpreting what it means, involves the student at two levels. First one has to hear the word they heard, referring to the original audience. We must try to understand what was said to the original audience back then and there. That's exegesis. And then the second part of the process, we must learn to hear that same word in the here and now. To understand what it means today, that's hermeneutics. The first task is exegesis. This involves the careful, systematic study of the Scripture to discover the original intended meaning. It's the attempt to hear the word as the original recipients were to have heard it, to find out what was the original intent of the words of the Bible. So exegesis is focused on the there and then aspects of the text, what it meant to its original audience. The bulk of our time in this quarter has been focused on how to go about that process. And the bulk of our time was focused on how to read the text carefully so that we can then decipher what that original meaning is. The second task we call hermeneutics. Now, hermeneutics is a word that can can refer to the whole process of biblical interpretation, including the exegetical part. But in our context, we're using it to focus on the here and now meaning of the text, the part, uh, the part of the process where we're taking what we've discovered the original meaning to be, and then we're applying it to our current situation. So hermeneutics for us refers to how the text applies to today, to our current situation. So I wanted to remind you that we have a two-part process, ultimately, that has sub-processes among it. But first, you've got to learn the, here, the, the there and then aspect of the text so you can apply it to the here and now. And the overarching rule of biblical interpretation is you must start with exegesis. The reason you must begin with exegesis is because the only proper control for hermeneutics is to be found in the original intent of the biblical text. 
the here and now understanding of a text must be predicated on a there and then understanding of the text. In other words, good biblical interpretation accepts that a text cannot mean what it could never have meant for its original readers or hearers. Or to put that in a positive way, the true meaning of the biblical text for us is what God originally intended it to mean when it was first spoken. So all that is to be a summary for us. That there is two parts to this process discovering the meaning that the original audience would have understood and then applying that original meaning to our current context. Exegesis, then hermeneutics. And we can't get those out of order. When it comes to studying the Bible, when it comes to biblical interpretation, you have to maintain that order because the application cannot precede the understanding of meaning. But the problem is oftentimes... We do that. We jump ahead to application before we have understanding of meaning. So that's why we have focused on this interpretive journey, this process that the book outlines. And I have highlighted this over and over again throughout this class because I think it's important for us to understand the process that we must walk through. And that process involves five steps. First, there's grasping the text in their own town. What did the text mean to the biblical audience? How did they understand its meaning? This is the part that probably takes the most amount of your time. And so you you first have to spend time investigating the text, carefully reading the text, engaging in an investigation of context, both historical, cultural context, and literary context, all to come to a grasp the meaning of the text to its original audience. Then you engage with the uh, divide, the river of culture and time and situation and language that divides us from the original audience. We have to to, uh, identify those things that separate us, those things that serve as differences between us and them, so that we can then develop what is known as step three, the principalizing bridge where we are able to identify the differences and also similarities between us and the original audience and utilize the differences and similarities to determine what biblical theological principle connects us to them. And once we can identify that biblical principle, we then consult the biblical map and make sure that that principle we are identifying from the text does not disagree with anything else in the rest of Scripture, that it's consistent with the whole of the Bible. And then we can get into step five, which we're going to talk about in a minute, which is the application. So all of the preceding steps are intended to set us up so we can make application. And we have to do all of those previous steps so that we don't make improper application. So I want to give a few examples very quickly. Let's start with Matthew chapter 18 and verse 20. Many of you have heard this text before, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am I among them. Now how does this sometimes get applied? What application have you heard from this text in your past, Mike? Just... The, the, I'm going to generalize that even more. That we can worship as long as there are two or three Christians present. 
That's how it gets applied. It could be in the context of staying at home to worship. Or any gathering where there are just two or three Christians present, that constitutes worship. Um, That's what you were going to say as well. Have any of you ever heard that application of this text? Raise your hand. Well, that may not be wrong. It may not be wrong that you can worship with just two or three. There are churches that exist. There are bodies of Christ out there. That that's all the Christians in an area of a particular society, and that's all the Christians there. So they gather and worship as two or three. That in and of itself may not be wrong. But that's not the context of this passage. If you read, uh, and, and that's the problem, we're not grasping the text in their town. We're not grasping the original meaning of the text when we make that application. We've jumped to an application based on the terminology, not based on the context. You see, if you look at Matthew chapter 18 and the immediate context of that passage, that's the section of Scripture where Jesus gives us instructions on how to address sin in someone's life. The process of conflict resolution it's sometimes referred to. In the context of Matthew 18, Jesus gives us that that formula. Hey, if your brother has sinned against you, go and tell him his faults. And then if that doesn't work, get two or three others to go with you and deal with him. And if he won't listen to them, take it to the church. The whole idea in Matthew chapter 18 is about dealing with impenitent sin. And so the two or three were not gathered together here in this context to worship. They're gathered to verify the repentance or impenitence of an offending brother or sister. And Jesus promised that he'll be there in support in such occasions. It has nothing to do with worship. So when you make that conclusion based on a single verse without context, You've skipped the whole step one and gone straight into application, and you've made a false application, a misapplication, if you will. So we've, that's why it's so important to go through those steps. Or maybe you'll remember our reference to Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 11 previously. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. In what situations have you heard this verse applied? Modern day, how have you heard this verse used? Oh, I know you've heard this verse used in modern day context. Graduation events. We use this verse to talk about an individual's life. We've applied this verse to people who are transitioning in in some facet of life, and we want them to be encouraged that God has a plan for their life. Now, it's true. God has a plan. I can consult other biblical passages that will identify that, that that God has a purpose for you. But when we take this verse and use it in that context. You know what we've done? We've never measured the width of the river. We've never looked at how that situation differs from our situation. Because if you read the immediate context of Jeremiah 29, it's talking about when the Israelites are going to go into exile. The verse immediately before this specifies that they're going to be in exile for 70 years. 
And then God has a plan for them to come back and be in the promised land again. He's telling them, you're about to endure punishment, but don't worry, I still have a plan for you. And when you apply Jeremiah 29 verse 11, without having measured the river, you're, uh, using, you're applying it in a way that is outside of its meaning and doesn't have an, the same correlation that we give it. So when you, when you apply a verse without doing the process, you misapply it. And what about Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1? Now, a lot of people that aren't even a part of the church love Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. How have you heard people use this verse? Anything goes. Let's be more specific than that. There, there, there are no rules. Uh, really what they love to do is say, don't point out my sin because you don't have the right to judge my sin. That's where you're going to hear it really applied from outside the church in particular. And the, I, what people love to claim is that Christians don't have the right to judge someone else's sin. This is the, they love to pair this with the, uh, the story in John chapter 8 of the woman caught in adultery. Don't throw your stones at me. But you know what people that apply that verse in that vein have not done? They haven't consulted the biblical map. Because you can go to one verse in another gospel to show that there is a proper time for judgment, you can go to John chapter 7, verse 24. Do not judge by appearance, but judge with right judgment. You see, in the scriptures, and this isn't the only scripture you can pull, but there are scriptures that talk about our ability to judge. In fact, in Matthew chapter 7, you just go a few verses after this, and it tells you you will know them by their fruit. There is an ability that people have to judge, Jesus' criticism when you consult the biblical map is about judging based on appearances, not having righteous judgment about fruit. So failure to consult the biblical map will lead to a misapplication of a verse as well. So I wanted to give you just a handful of examples. More could be given. In fact, I had a, a text chain with my fellow ministers last night where we were just spouting off Various passages that get misapplied because they don't go through the process. They don't go through the study of context. They don't consult the biblical map. They don't measure the width of the river. And there are many verses we can encounter that go straight to application instead of going through the process. That's why all of this was necessary for us to do on the front end before we ever got to the point of saying, how do we go about applying this to today? Because if you don't do the study if you don't investigate context, if you don't consider the difference between that time period and today, if you don't look at the rest of Scripture, then you will misapply the text quite easily. And misapplication is not the same as application. So let's talk about the importance of application. When we grasp God's Word, we not only understand its meaning, we also take the final step and live out that meaning. It's very easy for us to spend the time studying and knowing what God's Word said, but if we don't figure out how it applies to our lives, we've missed a crucial step. 
We cannot apply the Bible without knowing what it means, but we can know the Bible without living it. We can investigate context, analyze words, and even memorize chapters, but unless we act on what we know, we do not truly grasp the word. Knowledge by itself is not enough. It should lead to action. Isn't that what Jesus is saying in John chapter 14, verse 21? Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. It's an equation, isn't it? Knowing the commandments and observing the commandments equals love. I think James says it in another way, which I didn't pull this verse up here, and I apologize for that. Be what of the word and not hearers only? Be what? Doers and not hearers only? Because sometimes we're really good at being the hearers, at knowing what the word says, but the doing part we leave off. The application part gets left off, but that's part of the study too. It's not just about understanding what the Bible says, it's about knowing how to implement what the Bible says into my life. And so that's why application is so important. But we need to remind ourselves, this was at the tail end of last week's class, the difference between meaning, meaning and application. Meaning refers to that which the author intended to communicate when he wrote the text. Meaning is something we can validate. It is tied to the text. It's tied to the intent of the author, not the reader. Therefore, the meaning of the text is the same for all Christians. It is not subjective, and it does not change from reader to reader. Meaning is constant. Application refers to the response of the reader to the meaning of the text. It reflects the impact of the text on the reader's life. It is much more subjective, and it reflects the specific life situation of the reader. The application of the meaning will vary from Christian to Christian, but it will still have some boundaries influenced by the author's meaning. In other words, the meaning of the text stays the same. It is constant. The application can differ from Christian to Christian based on what's their life situation. So, it would be incorrect, as I pointed out last week, for us to ask in a Bible study, what does this passage mean to you? Because that, mean, that question is saying meaning is subjective. Meaning changes between person to person. The correct question is, what does this passage mean and how should I apply this meaning to my life? Or how should you apply this meaning to your life? What we do with that line of questioning is say, meaning is constant. Application is variable. Application is subjective. Do you see the difference? That's important for us to recognize. And so I want to go back to a verse I mentioned last week, Ephesians chapter 6. I did not put the verse up here, and I apologize for that. But Ephesians chapter 6 is where I want to go, and I want us to discuss application real quick. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Children, obey your parents. Every one of us was a child of a parent at some point in time. What's the meaning of Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 3?
Okay. Ms. Emily just said, I'm going to summarize. Obedience is expected as long as it's consistent with God's will. We're called to obey our parents as long as that obedience does not contradict the will of God. The reason she added that as long as that exception is because in her head she's already consulted the biblical map. She knows about the book of Acts where Paul says we must obey God rather than men. So she's done the consulting the biblical map in the process of meaning. Okay, and we're all, we, we, do, we sometimes automatically do that, and that's okay. Rich, what were you going to say? It is there as well. Yes. Yes. And, and that, but you're right. It's in there in the text. But we, our minds like to jump to other passages that are a little bit more direct. Which is, we, shall obey, uh, we must obey God rather than men, that sort of thing. So it's there in the text. So we, here's the meaning. Obedience of parents is a way we, we reflect obedience to God. But obedience to parents has limitations in that once they aren't, uh, if they fall outside the will of God in what they're telling us to do, okay, obedience then becomes, comes off the table because obedience to God takes precedence, right? Okay. Is Leah's obedience to me as a parent the same as Sarah's obedience to her parents since we've got three generations in this congregation? Is Leah's obedience to me the same as my obedience to my parents? Why not? Isn't the meaning the same? Okay, so the point is made that Leah lacks a certain level of knowledge, particularly biblically speaking, a, a certain, uh, a certain uh, accountability, I guess we could use that terminology. Instructor versus pupil? Okay. Age of Man, there you go, you're consulting the biblical map right now. Except for age of accountability, not quite. That one technically, you're not going to find that terminology, but you will find that principle to some degree. Um, but great point. So, I mean, it's very interesting in my household especially because I tease that I've got two children younger than me and two children older than me because we now have a three-generational household. And it's very, it's very unique at what, you know, at what point does the obedience factor change. It's, all I'm getting at is the application adjusts with life situations. Kurt mentioned the leave and cleave principle. Obviously, God also has a policy in there that when you get married, you become a, an entity unto yourself with your spouse. 
You become a, a new home with your spouse. The leave and cleave principle obviously has an effect on the obedience principle, right? But did you also pick up on Ephesians chapter 6, where it, where it references um, Mosaic law, it references the Ten Commandments, to honor your father and mother. Now, the leave and cleave principle might affect my obedience, but does it affect my honor? That's different. You see, I expect Leah to not only honor me, but to obey me. When I tell her to go pick something up, clean something up, I expect her to do that. Now, Sarah's mom might tell her to go pick something up in our house, and that don't mean Sarah's going to do it. <laughs> but you know what? The one reason that Sarah's parents live with us is because we want to honor them. And many of you have, have made the same choice. I see, I see David here tonight finding to honor his parents by helping take care of them. You know, there, there's different stages of life. You honor your parents by helping take care of them in their older age. You, you honor your parents by listening to wise counsel when you need advice. You might not do exactly what they say, but you, you listen to them because they may have experienced it too. Honor is still a way of fulfilling this command in Ephesians chapter 6. It's just a different life application. So while the, the meaning doesn't change, the application does. Now, let's walk through that a little bit more detail based on some of the things they provide in this book. Make sure, oh, I'm going the wrong way. That's part of the problem. And we're going to work with Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. That's going to be our, our premise tonight. You know why? Because this is one of the most misapplied verses in all the Bible. How does this verse get misapplied? I saw on the news today about a UFC fighter who has been removed from the next bout. And there was a picture of him. And tattooed across his shoulder and chest was Philippians 4.13. Now, I'm not trying to judge this guy because I don't want to be guilty of Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. But anyway, no, uh, but athletes love Philippians 4.13. Why? How do they apply it? <laughs> the, the application that uh, athletes love is that um, God's going to empower me, Christ is going to empower me to be successful in this difficult endeavor. That's a great, that's a great, great question. I guess it's whoever's the most Christian. <laughs> yeah. So that, that's the application that, that gets used. And I have been guilty in my past of misapplying that verse. Uh, I have been guilty in my, in recent days of intentionally misapplying that verse to help teach my daughter a, a, a lesson. But I know the context of it. Let's work with that this evening uh, with the process that is encouraged in this book. Uh, just a second as I catch up in my own notes. We're going to go through the, quickly through the entire interpretive journey to get to step five so that we can do the application process. Grasping the text in their town. What did the text mean to the biblical audience? I'm taking this word for word from the book, so some of it may not be the way I would say it. The book, they, they do this for the, for the uh, grasping it in their town, doing their, their careful reading and understanding context, they, they say, we should note that Paul writes this letter while in prison awaiting trial. 
His faithfulness to Christ in the ministry of the gospel has landed him in prison. In this letter to the church in Philippi, he exhorts the believers to stand firm in the face of external opposition and warns them against internal fighting. He reports about his own situation and thanks them for their ministry to him. In in chapter 4, he acknowledges their monetary gifts sent through the mutual friend Epaphroditus. He also wants to make it clear that while he is most grateful for their gift, his ministry is ultimately dependent on Christ. That's our summation of the, uh, the context of the verse, the context of the surrounding passage, and the context of the letter collectively. So, with that in mind, here's what could be a summary statement of the context here. Paul told the Philippians that he had learned to be content in a variety of difficult circumstances through Christ, who gave him strength. When you come up with a summary, which is... Uh, the suggested strategy of your careful study and investigation of a text to come up with a short summary statement by the end of it. Remember to write it in past tense and to write it about the immediate context, the, the author and audience, that sort of thing. So this is the, the uh, um, summary statement they came up with for the context of this passage. Paul told the Philippians that he had learned to be content in a variety of difficult circumstances through Christ who gave him strength. Okay. I think we could all agree with that. No big objections. This isn't a theologically complicated passage. When you measure the width of the river, here's the observations made by the authors of this book. Go back. Here? Mm-hmm. To... It's po- I mean, it's possible, but if you do some consultation with other uh, commentaries, with um, other resources like that, as well as as you go through the process, if you go through the process and your theological principle doesn't line up with the rest of Scripture, then you can go back to the beginning and start, uh, start over, that sort of thing. Uh, but uh, Moving on, but that is a great question. It's possible for us to get things wrong from time to time as well. Now measure the width of the river. The differences between our situation and the biblical situation, some of the observations they made. Paul is an apostle. We're not. Paul is in prison, and unlike Paul, most of us have not been in prison for our faith or ever will be for that reason or any reason. Neither are we members of the Philippian church supporting Paul's ministry financially at this time. Those are three major differences between us and them. But they also say, you know, it's important to notice similarities, too, for the purpose of coming up with your your theological principle. And similarities are that, that we're both them and us, New Testament Christians. That we're members of Christ's body. And that many of us have experienced difficult situations as we seek to live out our faith. Maybe even some difficult situations because of our faith. And so that's where there are similarities. Once you can note those differences and similarities third step is creating the principalizing bridge. What is the theological principle in the text? This is the one, uh, they came up with two different statements here to, to, to um, make that uh, differ just a little bit. Their first statement was, believers can learn to be content in a variety of circumstances through Christ who gives them strength. Now what's interesting is that's not really different than the summary statement 
related to Paul. The they made the change of making it present tense, or future tense for that matter, and making it applicable to us and not just to Paul. The other option they gave was Christ will give believers strength to be content in a variety of trying circumstances that come as a result of following him faithfully. The theological principle is about us in the presence and present and future and or future. And it's very much similar to the summary. And from a theological perspective, you look at that statement, okay, I can see how Philippians 4.13 results in that. Now, consulting the biblical map. In this context, you're, what you're con when you consult the biblical map, you're looking for anything that supports and or challenges your theological principle. And generally speaking, Philippians 4.13, you're not going to find anything that disregards it as a principle that, that in, in difficult circumstances, because of your faith, you can be strengthened through Christ. So that's like really quick without doing all the detail work of going through that process, uh, having it done for us technically. So then now how do we make this transition into application? They gave three points in this regard. Observe how the principles in the text address the original situation. Look carefully at how the biblical principle addresses the historical cultural situation here you are trying to see how the biblical author wanted his original audience to apply the meaning. What you find in this intersection between the biblical text and the original situation lies at the center of the application process. So that's a lot of words. It probably works better if I can show you how they went about this. So as they looked at it, what they're saying is, here's the original situation. To build the theological principle, you need to... F well, let me back this up. There, this uh, image is showing you the original situation and the theological principle that they have suggested. Paul, a Christian who is experiencing a variety of trying circumstances as a result of following Christ faithfully. That's the original situation. Paul, and notice they're highlighting the things that are similar. Paul, a Christian like you and I, not an apostle because that's not similar. Paul, a Christian is experiencing a variety of trying circumstances. Not talking about prison, because that's one of the dividers. That's one of the differences. Paul, a Christian who's experiencing a variety of trying circumstances as a result of following Christ faithfully. He's not just experiencing difficult circumstances because the weather was bad or because the economy tanked. It's because he's, a, he's faithfully following Christ. And the theological principle of Christ will give Paul strength to endure such difficult situations. Now, what are the intersecting points? The intersection points between the principle and the original situation have to do with Paul, a Christian, experiencing circum trying circumstances as a result of following Christ faithfully, and three, I didn't mean to do that, able to endure circumstances because of the strength provided by Christ. So when Christians find themselves in difficult circumstances because they follow Jesus, they can rely on Jesus to give them the strength they need to endure faithfully. That's that, so you find the three, the, they identify three intersectory points that relate to Paul's situation and can relate to our situation. And that's how they come up with the conclusion that based on these intersections, 
when Christians find themselves in difficult circumstances because they are following Jesus, they can rely on Jesus to give them the strength they need to endure faithfully as well. That's how they came up with that statement, but finding those intersection points. When it comes to the applications, it's also discovering a parallel situation. You also want to discover a parallel situation in a contemporary context. Preachers try to do this a lot. I'm not as good at coming up with uh, uh, real-world scenarios as other preachers. That's not my strength so much in the application process, but that's another way to go about the process of finding a valid application. In discovering how to apply or, or live out the Bible, we have to be students not only of the biblical world, but also of your own world. Search for a situation in your life or in your world that parallels the biblical situation. In regards to Philippians 4.13, you would be looking for a situation where a Christian is facing difficult circumstances because of their faithful commitment to Christ. See, that's where the hang-up happens with athletes. The difficult circumstance they're facing is a challenging opponent, a, 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 a big game or a big contest. It's not because of their faith. It's because of their sport. So that's why it doesn't make the connection of an application. And, um, so the idea here is you're taking the... You're creating a parallel situation, which is Christians facing a variety of trying circumstances as a result of following Christ. And then you're applying that theological principle of Christ will give these Christians the strength to endure such difficult circumstances. That's how you're going to make the process. But here's the example. A mother whose non-Christian husband recently deserted her because of her commitment to Christ. Ah, a situation of a Christian facing difficulty because of her faith. Her two small children suddenly find themselves without a father. The sense of personal failure weighs heavy. The social pressure of what people will say lingers. She faces overwhelming financial burdens and worries about how she will survive on her part-time job. Now, this is, this is creating a real-world real situation that parallels. Okay, it doesn't parallel prison because that was a, a difference that, we, that uh, is not part of the the, uh, from there then to here now transition. But she's a Christian. Remember, that's one. The second one was difficult circumstance. Third one was because of, because of their faithful living. All three of those are identifiable in this particular situation. Therefore, it becomes a parallel situation. Does that part make sense? So then, when you can make a parallel situation, when you can develop a parallel situation that's when you get to the application process of trying to figure out, okay, I'm going to apply this to that situation, but I've got to come up with specific ways the biblical principle might apply. I'm sorry I didn't adjust the font there. That entails considering what one should be or should think or should do as a result of the principle that has been picked out. Because applications may touch on our character, our thinking, or our behavior. So when you think about this situation of a woman who has been deserted by her husband because of her newfound faith, the biblical principle is that Christ will, give, will uh, help those, and I'm not using the exact words here. Let me go back one slide because that has it. Christ will give Christians the strength to endure such difficult circumstances. How might that specifically happen? 
Because we can't visually see or experience Christ working. So how might we be able to say this apply? How does this, how should she think, be, or do to bring that into fruition? Support of a church family. That right there can be an application point. How many people get into a difficult situation and remove themselves from the people of faith? So one application can be here, can be along the lines of in such a difficult situation where your, your, your physical family is failing you. Insert yourself more strongly into your spiritual family. In fact, that was advice that Ben Hogan gave to somebody just this, this week because of a situation they were experiencing. Rich. Absolutely. You're not just looking for con the context that applies just to her. You're looking for the context that applies to everyone. What you have then is you've taken the meaning and said, okay, the application for this specific individual, but there's a different application for the people outside of her. So you're finding the application for the different stage of life in this particular scenario. Anybody else? Uh, Michael. I take them to the context. What I did not do tonight is have us read the verses around it where Paul says I've, uh, I, tells the things he's experienced and how he's uh, been impoverished and taken well care of, but that he has found that no matter what situation he finds himself, Christ will give him the strength. So it's all a passage of contentment. It's all about being content. And so that's where I would go is say, well, the verse isn't about being able to win that football game. The verse is about being content in whatever scenario you find yourself. So that, that's where I would go. And I kind of skipped that step in this process. Stan. Yeah. 
Yes, ma'am. Primarily, because of the context part. And going through the context part of reading the verses around it and determining what specific situation it is, you wouldn't have made, you wouldn't have come to the conclusion that it applies to worship. The, the, the parts that we sped through tonight, that we've, we spent all the time on on the front end of learning historical, cultural context, literary context, and that sort of stuff, would have narrowed you into focusing on uh, correction rather than worship, if that makes sense. I, yes. The, of that verse. Yes, that, that's exactly what it said. And, and really what what probably happens is other verses and other things present in Scripture cause us to reflect on that passage with that meaning when that passage isn't giving that meaning. So it's not that it doesn't appear elsewhere in Scripture. It's just in that context. It's not what it's talking about. Kurt? That, that's a fair way of looking at it as well, that it's exclusive of me being able to worship God right now. Right. Yeah. And, you know, if nobody ever said that you had to have a profession in order to be baptized, or someone... Oh, Kurt. Don't, don't overcomplicate things tonight, Kurt. <laughs> Yeah, it's all about our, our intent. And, and, what, and what happens there is we're doing what you just talked about would be the, doing what's called eisegesis where we're reading into the text to find what we want it to say instead of discovering what it actually says. So you actually, the way you, the way you described that was a great example of how people find what they're looking for. You can find anything you want to find in God's Word if you, if you try hard enough. You can find anything you want. You can manipulate any passage the way you want if you try hard enough. Now, that's a, we, we've done a great job of spending some time on Matthew 18, 20. Can we get back to Philippians 4, 13? What's another application we can make here for this, for this situation? And, and no, I'm, I'm not upset that we went there. Um, what's another application we can make here? Remember, when you're making an application, you really want to get specific about what you should be or do or think in a situation.
Yes. Uh, I think that's a great one as well to, to make an application of, okay, so here, um, the application of continuing your uh, spiritual walk in the situation, just as Paul is going to continue his uh, in that in his uh, situation, he's not going to give up on Christ. He's going. Christ is his source of strength, so he's not going to give up on Christ. He's not going to abandon him. That sort of thing. That's a, that's a great one as well. Um, I think even here, a, a good one would be consulting a mature Christian who has had a similar experience. Finding someone who can be a, a mentor of sorts to you, or something like that, could be an application we we pull out of this. As in, see, one of the things as preachers that we have the responsibility of doing, and, and as I mentioned earlier, I may not be the best at it, is not just helping you understand a passage, but helping you figure out how it, how you live it out. And that's what we're talking about with this application process: is is being able to yourself as you're studying find ways to live out the expectations of that passage. So what I want to do is I want to abandon this one now. I want to go to a one that's probably a little bit more familiar to you. Well, not, I mean, Philippians 4.13 is familiar, but, but one you kind of got the context on really easily. Let's go to Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. I don't have it on the screen. PowerPoint is, is done at this point. But let's, let's do some application, Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Hopefully this is familiar to you because it is the passage in which Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. First question, what is all the things that will be added? If you look back at the previous verses. What was that? Physical needs. Specifically, the reference is made to food, water, and clothes. So the things you need to survive physically are the, actual, the specific context. Now, how does this get misapplied? Michael. There's a great example of how it gets misapplied. God's going to give it to me no matter what I do, so I might as well just be lazy. Which does not cons- consult the biblical map when you think about what is said by Paul in 2 Thessalonians. So, that's a misapplication. It can also be misapplied by saying anything that I think I need, God will supply. I need a new car. God will supply it. I need a new house. God will supply it. That also is a misapplication. Rich. Or they, or they just don't look at the preceding verses, which is what happens. Cherry picking. So, we talked about the misapplication. So, we know the context. Uh, we're, we're not doing all that study that you would want to do beforehand. But how can we apply, how does this verse apply to people? How would we take this verse and say, here's what it calls on you to do? 
or be or think. Ms. Debbie makes a great point. The context is about being living worry-free. So one of the first, now we've got an application that deals with thinking. An application of, of not worrying, which is way easier said than done. But think about how many verses, how many passages, how many stories in the Bible have that very message within them. And right now we've got a verse that is catering to that application of not worrying, which in turn is all about trusting God. The not worrying mentality is actually a trust God mentality. Mike. The time you spend worrying is, is time you're taking away from spiritual growth. That's a great observation. And that's a great application. Rich. So there's a message, an application in here of contentment, of, uh, of realizing what, what wants and needs are, of acknowledging that. What about the seek first part here? How does that apply? It is, but how do you get specific? What does that entail? Not on the length of the sermon. <laughs> okay. Hopefully, this gives you just a little bit of ability to wade into the water of your own personal study in a way you haven't before. That's been the objective. I know it's not the easiest thing to listen to as a class, but I'm thankful for your attention and participation this quarter. And again, if you want to uh, do more study on it yourself, I encourage you to look at the book Grasping God's Word, uh, and I can get that information to you if you ever want it. Um, but hopefully we all become better students ourselves. Let's close with a quick word of prayer, and then we'll get you out of here with that last bell. Lord, we thank you for another evening, and it's been our, our, um, our pleasure to be able to study about how to study your Word. And while, Lord, we know this hasn't been a quarter where we've been um, really digesting what your word says, we've been trying to equip ourselves to be, uh, to be better students, to be more equipped um, to handle your word of truth rightly. And, and, Lord, it's our prayer that you will instill with all of us a passion to spend more time in your word and to do so successfully 
And may your word impact us daily. Lord, we're grateful that you have communicated to us in this fashion, and may we never take it for granted. It's through your son's name we pray. Amen.